how do you want to open this one? So do you want to introduce ourselves and yeah, then I will. Uh, do you know, say something about the fact that today is a little bit different because this is what we've kind of been building up to? Is this... Sounds like you just did. No, I'll, I'll do something like that. That's fine. <laughs> Welcome back once again, boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, people. <laughs> I think that's the people of all ages. People of all ages, you're like you're sizes. For a circus or a fair or something. Come one, come all, come, come and see the man who does the podcast and his friend, the smart one and the not so smart one. As they perform an endeavor <laughs> of many feats of numbers. <laughs> Watch one number jump from another. All right, I'm sorry. That's too much. Um, <laughs> welcome back, everybody, to another episode of The Truth About Investing, Back to Basics. I am Chris Holling. And I'm Sean Cooper. And, and that was a great example of why you do stand-up and not uh comedy and improv and i do not i you know to be fair i'm sitting down right now (laughs) (laughs) smart aleck uh uh, welcome back to another episode today is kind of what we've been building to this season i'm i'm excited about it actually um i don't know about likewise okay good oh yeah that was just that was just that was just me that's fine that's fine that's cool it's whatever (laughs) <laughs> and what we wanted to do is is we've gone over so many different subjects with really a, a lot of information actually i don't know if i've told you this but one of the feedbacks that i've gotten from from a listener was saying that they really enjoy listening to the podcast and typically they are doing something when they listen to podcasts and this one has been so good that they continue listening to it but it has so much information in it that she felt like she actually had to stop and sit down and listen and, and write things down because wow. it has so much info in it. And so she has to like actively hold on, I gotta I gotta take a minute and I gotta listen to this rather than they're they're doing that and and also ironing or or lifting weights or something. It was just interesting feedback that I've had. So we are jam packed with information. I like it. <laughs> and it's good feedback. And we've used all of that to get to what we're at now to use all these foundational pieces so that this all makes sense. This way this stuff that we're going to go over today isn't insanely overwhelming. Um it it will still be a lot of information and uh saddle up because it's no different than it's been before. <laughs> but uh in that same regard it won't be so overwhelming with pieces that maybe other people haven't considered before, and then that way we're not brushing over something that maybe someone doesn't understand. Like when we're talking about the different possibilities in, in plans and how uh, health insurance has changed through the years and how that affects things, and uh, when you get multiple bills and they come to your home, and, and it it's all coming together. <laughs> and that's why today we are telling a story of healthcare through the ages 
to try and compare how things go on when you are ill many, many years ago and when you are ill today and how changes have occurred since then to now and what we're dealing with now and into the future. Meet Tim. Tim is 55 years old and until recently in very good health. Specifically, Tim woke up with a fever this morning and is feeling bad enough to warrant a hospital visit. We're going to follow Tim through the course of his hospital visits, diagnoses, treatment, and outcome over more than 100 years. Fortunately for us, it will only take a few minutes. The year is 1865. Tim wakes up with a fever and calls upon the local folk healer. At this time, folk healers offered essentially the same treatments, but for less. He probably also sent a messenger since phones were not common yet. The folk healer comes to Tim's home, takes his temperature, and asks Tim about his symptoms. Tim complains of a fever, body ache, sweating, a stomach ache, and diarrhea. The healer makes Tim a powder of willow bark. Any shrub of the genus Spirea that contains salicylic acid will do. To help with the pain. Tells Tim he will come back the next day to make sure he is recovering from the fever. Takes his payment and leaves. About a 30 to 45 minute visit. The following day the healer returns. After a few hours reprieve from the willow bark, Tim's condition worsened. The healer returns the next day to find Tim's condition has deteriorated. He provides some additional willow bark for Tim, and in an effort to balance Tim's humors, opts for a round of bloodletting via several leeches. One to two hour visit. Again, the healer takes his payment and offers to return later that day. Unfortunately for Tim, after several rounds of willow bark and bloodletting, he passes away in only a few days. Overall mortality rate, roughly 40%, significantly higher for adults over 55. The year is 1915. Tim wakes up with a fever and calls the local doctor. The doctor arrives at Tim's home, takes his temperature, conducts a basic exam, feeling Tim's stomach, and asks Tim about his symptoms. Tim complains of a fever, body ache, sweating, a stomach ache, and diarrhea. The doctor tells Tim he likely has dysentery from contaminated water and gives Tim some aspirin for the pain. A more concentrated dosage of salicylic acid with a more effective delivery system that also protects the stomach from the acidity. And tells Tim to drink lots of fresh water. The doctor charges Tim $3.50 and tells him he will return tomorrow to make sure he is recovering. Roughly a 30 to 45 minute visit. After a few hours reprieve from the aspirin, Tim's condition worsened. The doctor returns the following day after hearing that Tim has not been urinating despite drinking substantial amounts of water, the doctor tells Tim he suspects now he has an infection that has spread to his kidneys. Possibly sepsis. Unfortunately, the doctor has no way of pinpointing the infection and no targeted treatments. In addition to the aspirin and the water, 
the doctor prescribes arsenic as a last-ditch effort to treat the infection. The first antibiotic, penicillin, was not discovered until 1928 and was not used as a treatment until after 1938. The doctor charged $11. Health insurance was not prevalent until after Blue Cross Blue Shield was founded in 1929. And told Tim he would return again the next day. Roughly a 45 to 60 minute visit. Although Tim's condition improved as the arsenic combated the infection, he eventually died of arsenic poisoning. Overall mortality rate, roughly 40%, significantly higher for adults over 55. The year is 1965. Tim wakes up with a fever and schedules an appointment with his doctor. Tim arrives at the clinic and waits about 15 minutes before seeing the doctor. The doctor takes Tim's temperature, conducts a routine exam, asks Tim about his symptoms, draws some blood, and adds some notes to Tim's records. The doctor tells Tim he probably has a virus or infection that is his body should fight naturally. He tells Tim to take some aspirin. Or any number of other painkillers. For the pain, to drink lots of water in order to stay hydrated, that he will call him once he has the blood results, and to come back in if his symptoms worsen. About a 30-minute visit. Tim's bill comes to $34, of which he pays 15 Keep in mind, Tim's insurance premiums were probably around $500 to $1,400 for the year, depending on if he was covered as an individual or under a family plan. A portion of this was likely covered by his employer, although employer coverage was not quite as prevalent then as it is today. Tim's condition continues to deteriorate throughout the day and decides to return to the hospital. Since the blood test will not be in for a couple more days, Tim's doctor starts him on intravenous fluids and broad-spectrum antibiotics anyway. He also orders an ultrasound to check Tim's bowels and kidneys. Not surprisingly, the ultrasound is inconclusive. Ultrasound imaging did not improve sufficiently for most diagnostics until the 1970s. Again, for lack of a stronger diagnosis and based on Tim's ongoing symptoms and newly developed symptoms, decreased urination as Tim's kidneys start to shut down. Tim's doctor prescribes additional antibiotics to target the bowels and kidneys. About the time Tim starts to show signs of improvement, his blood test returns. The blood test results are indicative of sepsis, for which Tim is already being treated. Tim is able to make a nearly full recovery, suffering only minor cognitive decline from his bout with sepsis. The second visit costs a total of $1,000. $200 for the ultrasound and $800 for the intensive care. Of which Tim paid $450. Overall mortality rate, roughly 28%, significantly higher for adults over 55. The year is 2015, the story of when Tim doesn't listen. Tim wakes up with a fever and schedules an appointment with his doctor. Tim arrives at the clinic and waits about 30 minutes before seeing the nurse. The nurse takes Tim's temperature, conducts a routine exam, asks Tim about his symptoms, draws some blood, and fills everything out in Tim's electronic patient records. His doctor tells Tim his symptoms point to over a dozen different causes, but the most likely is gastroenteritis. Stomach flu. 
or food poisoning. He tells Tim to take some aspirin. Or any number of other painkillers. For the pain. To drink lots of water in order to stay hydrated. That he will call him once he has the blood results. And to come back in if his symptoms worsen. Roughly a 30 minute visit. 15 minutes with the nurse and 15 minutes with his doctor. Tim's co-pay for the visit is $20. He will also be sent a bill for the entire balance of $400 since he has not reached his deductible. That's a total of $120 for the visit and $300 for the blood test. Keep in mind, if Tim is an individual, his insurance premium for the year is around $6,500, of which he paid $1,500 and his employer paid $5,000. If Tim is on a family plan, his insurance premium for the year is around $18,000, of which he paid $6,200, and his employer paid $11,800. Tim gets a message from his doctor the next day with his blood results. Turns out Tim has sepsis and needs to come back immediately for treatment. Whether Tim is the type who tries to tough it out, is skeptical of doctors in general, or just doesn't want to pay for another visit, who knows? In any case, Tim decides to not go back in right away. Tim finally decides to get back into his doctor once the pain in his abdomen becomes unbearable. At this stage, the doctor is forced to rush Tim to the ER where he started on intravenous fluids, broad-spectrum antibiotics, vasopressors, and oxygen. Once the infection made its way to the bloodstream through the intestinal wall to become sepsis, it immediately spread to his kidneys and eventually to his other vital organs. At this stage, the doctors were not able to test Tim's urine because he is no longer urinating since his kidneys have started shutting down. They order a CT scan of Tim's abdomen. Which is delayed while they attempt to get approval from Tim's insurance. To examine his intestines and damage to the kidneys, as well as an x-ray of his lungs. Improvement to CT scans have reduced exposure to radiation by over 80% over the last few decades. Tim's lungs look as though they will heal with the addition of more targeted antibiotics, provided the source is contained. Based on the CT scan, though, Tim needs emergency surgery to remove an abscess in his intestines. Between the additional, targeted, antibiotics, and dialysis, the doctors are able to control the sepsis and perform the initial surgery to remove the abscess. The surgery is a success. Tim's total bill comes to $19,350. $2,000 for the CT scan, $350 for the x-ray, $15,600 for intensive care, and $1,400 for the surgery. Tim will also pay $55,000 or more per year for dialysis until a kidney donor can be found. Roughly two years. Once a donor is found, Tim will go back in for a kidney transplant, costing around $150,000 for the transplant and $90,000 to procure the kidney, plus $1,000 to $2,500 per month for the immunosuppressants for the rest of his life to prevent his body from rejecting the transplant. Ultimately, Tim will pay $3,580 out of pocket for the initial treatment and the full out-of-pocket maximum every year for the rest of his life in addition to his annual insurance premiums. There's also a good chance Tim will suffer a decline in cognitive function as a result of severe sepsis for which he postponed treatment. 
In the end, Tim decides to sue his doctor for not diagnosing the sepsis in the initial visit. Even though he did confirm it with the blood work the following day, not to mention the fact that they saved his life. As compensation for his cognitive decline and impaired standard of living on dialysis, and subsequently a lifetime of immunosuppressants, Tim will likely settle his suit out of court for around $400,000 because it costs the malpractice insurance provider less to settle than it does to continue paying attorney and court fees to take the case all the way to trial. Juries are also notoriously sympathetic of patients due to their lack of understanding of healthcare and medical diagnostics with the average jury award exceeding $1 million. Overall mortality rate, roughly 18%, significantly higher for adults over 55. The year is 2015 again, but this time Tim listens. Tim wakes up with a fever and schedules an appointment with his doctor. Tim arrives at the clinic and waits about 30 minutes before seeing the nurse. The nurse takes Tim's temperature, conducts a routine exam, asks Tim about his symptoms, draws some blood, and fills everything out in Tim's electronic patient records. His doctor tells Tim his symptoms point to over a dozen different causes, but the most likely is gastroenteritis. Or stomach flu. Or food poisoning. He tells Tim to take some aspirin. Or any number of other painkillers. For the pain, to drink lots of water in order to stay hydrated, that he will call him once he has the blood results, and to come back in if his symptoms worsen. 30-minute visit, 15 minutes with the nurse, and 15 minutes with the doctor. Tim's copay for the visit is $20. He will also be sent a bill for the entire balance of $400, since he has not reached his deductible. $120 for the doctor visit, and $300 for the blood test. Keep in mind... If Tim is an individual, his insurance premium for the year is around $6,500, of which he has paid $1,500 and his employer has paid $5,000. If Tim is on a family plan, his insurance premium for the year is around $18,000, of which he has paid $6,200 and his employer has paid $11,800. Tim gets a message from his doctor the next day with his blood results. It turns out Tim has sepsis and needs to come back in immediately for treatment. Tim immediately returns to the hospital and is taken to the intensive care unit where he is started on intravenous fluids and broad-spectrum antibiotics. The doctor takes a urine sample and orders a CT scan for Tim's abdomen. Which is delayed while they attempt to get approval from Tim's insurance. To examine his intestines and kidneys. Improvement to CT scans have reduced exposure to radiation by over 80% over the last few decades. Based on the CT scan, Tim should make a full recovery with the addition of targeted antibiotics. Tim's total bill comes to $12,400. $2,000 for the CT scan and $10,400 for intensive care. Tim makes a full recovery, pays $3,344 of the total bill. His insurance picks up the rest. And suffers no lasting consequences. Overall mortality rate, roughly 18%, significantly higher for adults over 55. This is Tim's experience in the year 2040 using single-payer systems, Medicare for All, or any variety of it. Anywhere applicable, insurance refers to the health insurance provided by controlled private institutions 
or the federal government. Tim wakes up with a fever and heads to the hospital. He knows he won't be able to schedule an appointment last minute, and he no longer has a single single doctor he sees because his insurance dictates he sees whoever is available, since there have been a shortage of healthcare professionals over the last decade. Tim arrives at the clinic and waits about two hours before seeing a nurse. The nurse takes Tim's temperature, conducts a routine exam, asks Tim about his symptoms, draws some blood, and checks off a variety of boxes on an online insurance information database. After waiting another 15 to 30 minutes, the doctor pops in to tell Tim his symptoms point to over a dozen different causes, but his insurance electronic database says it's most likely gastroenteritis, stomach flu, or food poisoning, which he should recover from naturally. The insurance printout Tim receives tells him to take some aspirin, or any number of other painkillers, for the pain, to drink lots of water in order to stay hydrated, that he will receive a call once the blood results are in. Roughly a 45-minute visit, 15 minutes with a nurse, and 5 minutes with a doctor, not counting the waits. Tim's co-pay for the visit is $60. He will also be sent a bill for the entire balance of $780 since he has not reached his deductible. $240 for the doctor visit and $600 for the blood test. Keep in mind, if Tim is an individual, his insurance premium for the year is around $19,500, of which he paid $4,500 and his employer paid $15,000. If Tim is on a family plan, his insurance premium for the year is around $54,000, of which he paid $18,600, and his employer paid $35,400. And, if this was a true single-payer system, you would not be paying insurance premiums, or a deductible, or anything of that nature. Instead, he would be paying higher taxes. To give you an idea of what that looks like, as of today, it would increase his taxes by at least 17%, but more likely 20%. By 2040, as in this example, the tax increase would likely be closer to 23%. And when I say a 23% increase, I don't mean if you're paying 10% taxes now, it jumps to 12%, or if you're paying 30% taxes now, it jumps to 36%. I mean, if you're paying 10% now, it jumps to over 30%. And if you're paying 30% now, it jumps to over 50%. Despite feeling much worse by that afternoon, Tim follows instructions on his form and waits for his blood results. Tim gets a message from his doctor the next day with his blood results. Turns out, Tim has sepsis and needs to come back immediately for treatment. Tim immediately returns to the hospital, and the doctors rush Tim to the ER. By rush, I mean Tim waits another hour because there are several more urgent cases already waiting, and another one that arrived shortly after he did. Where? With approval from his insurance. He is started on intravenous fluids, broad-spectrum antibiotics, vasopressors, and oxygen. Once the infection made its way to the bloodstream through the intestinal wall to become sepsis, it immediately spread to his kidneys and eventually to his other vital organs. After plugging everything into the electronic system, his insurance eventually orders a CT scan of Tim's abdomen to examine his intestines and damage to his kidneys, an x-ray of his lungs, and a urine analysis. 
Tim's lungs and kidneys look as though they will heal with the addition of more targeted antibiotics, provided the source is contained. Based on the CT scan, though, Tim needs emergency surgery to remove an abscess in his intestines. After some additional interaction with the electronic system and numerous insurance delays, the doctors finally get approval for additional targeted antibiotics, dialysis, and emergency surgery to remove the abscess. The surgery is a success. Tim's total bill comes to $38,700. $4,000 for the CT scan, $700 for the x-ray, $31,200 for intensive care, and $2,800 for the surgery. Although the insurance delays lead to additional medical expenses, Tim was able to avoid the necessity of a kidney transplant for now. The additional visit cost Tim $10,668, while his insurance paid the rest. Unfortunately for Tim, due to the increasing prevalence of antibiotic-resistant strains of infections and bacteria and a collapse of research and development in the medical field over the last two decades, the doctors were forced to prescribe Tim significantly more antibiotics than would have been common 30 to 50 years ago. Not only did the antibiotics kill off the infection, they also killed off many of Tim's beneficial bacteria. Ultimately, Tim ended up with another fungal infection just a few short weeks after, before his kidneys could fully recover. The whole process effectively began again, this time resulting in more tests, more antibiotics, more insurance delays, and a kidney transplant to save Tim's life. Tim's new bill looks almost identical to the last one, with a few variations to test for the fungal infection. This time, though, Tim will only pay $492 to reach his out-of-pocket maximum, while his insurance will pay $110,000 or more per year for dialysis until a kidney donor can be found. Roughly two years. Tim will pay the full amount of -of out-of-pocket maximum for dialysis the second year. Once a donor is found, Tim will go back in for a kidney transplant, costing around $300,000 for the transplant and $180,000 to procure the kidney, plus $2,000 to $5,000 per month for immunosuppressants for the rest of his life to prevent his body from rejecting the transplant. Again, this likely results in Tim hitting his full $12,000 with annual increases out-of-pocket maximum for the rest of his life in addition to his insurance premium. If Tim decides to file a suit due to any lingering cognitive decline after his bout with sepsis, his subsequent susceptibility to fungal infection that led to the necessity for a kidney transplant, or more logically, the delays on behalf of his health insurance, the malpractice insurance algorithms instantly kick out a settlement amount. Overall mortality rate, roughly 30%, significantly higher for adults over 55. The year is 2040 again, except this time around we're operating under the assumption that the healthcare system is switched to a cash-only system, eliminating insurance and government-based healthcare altogether. Tim wakes up with a fever and schedules an appointment with his doctor. Tim arrives at the clinic and waits about 20 minutes before seeing the nurse. The nurse takes Tim's temperature, conducts a routine exam, asks Tim about his symptoms, asks Tim if a recommended $450 blood test is acceptable, and fills everything out in Tim's electronic patient records. 
His doctor tells Tim his symptoms point to over a dozen different causes, but the most likely is gastroenteritis. Stomach flu. Or food poisoning. He tells Tim they can conduct a full body scan to confirm this diagnosis, but that it will cost $2,000. Alternatively, Tim can take some aspirin. Or any number of other painkillers. For the pain, drink lots of water in order to stay hydrated. His doctor will call him once he has the blood results, but to come back in if his symptoms worsen. 30 minute visit, 15 minutes with the nurse and 15 minutes with his doctor. Tim opts to pass on the body scan, but pays his balance of $650 on his way out. $200 for the doctor visit and $450 for the blood test. Tim gets a message from his doctor the next day with his blood results. It turns out Tim has sepsis and needs to come back in immediately for treatment. Tim immediately returns to the hospital and is taken to the intensive care unit where he is started on intravenous fluids and a newly developed antibiotic. The doctor takes a urine sample and discusses taking a scan of Tim's abdomen to examine his intestines and kidneys. New scanning methods have reduced the cost on an inflation-adjusted basis improved accuracy, and nearly eliminated radiation exposure. Tim opts for a scan this time, and based on the results, he should make a full recovery because the new antibiotics are already curing him. Tim's total bill comes to $18,300. $2,000 for the scan and $16,300 for intensive care. Tim makes a full recovery pays $3,500 on his way out the door, and is put on a payment plan with his hospital to cover the balance over the next two years. Overall mortality rate, roughly 10%, significantly higher for adults over 55. Regardless of what the future holds, planning and saving for healthcare costs is a must. Planning how to save for those costs and how to optimize investing those assets is where I can help. It was a long story, but hopefully it gives you an idea of where we've been and where we might be heading and also an idea of just why it's so important to start planning for these things. It also concludes our discussion of health insurance and gets, Absolutely. gives us the opportunity to move on to whole new topics, much broader topics. Yes. yes. Thank you, everybody, for for listening to this story. This, this is the story that we've been working on for a stretch of time, and uh, the reason that we needed to go over so many things before we get to this point, because there's, there's a lot of different factors creating these circumstances. And I, I think the thing that we, we really want to try and get across is considering the factors between really we're looking at the possibilities of the future of healthcare and the future of how health insurance is run, especially in the the time that we're in now where there are different possibilities of where healthcare and how healthcare is being paid for can go different directions. And is is there a way that you could break down for us kind of the the two main ideas that we're looking at between these two examples that happen in in the year 2040 can you kind of uh kind of dumb it down for me what we're looking at with the possibilities and not just the numbers like we were looking at of, of kind of a broad spectrum of both certainly i mean in general terms 
the cost of healthcare has been rising for a long time now and is expected to continue to go up. How much it goes up, I think, will be dependent on which route we take. And history has kind of showed us that the more insurance is involved in healthcare, the more rapidly costs actually tend to rise, even though the argument is that insurance acts as a control on costs and that the government as a single payer could act as a control on cost. And in fact, they could um, in countries where they have really pushed that lever and controlled costs, the service tends to suffer the most as a direct result of that. But in general terms, insurance rather than actually controlling costs tends to increase costs more rapidly than they otherwise would. At least that's what history has shown us. On the other hand, cash-based systems tend to actually do a better job of controlling costs in a couple of ways. First off, from a medical practitioner's standpoint, being paid cash means you don't have to deal with going out and trying to get payments from an insurer or being worried about if you're going to be paid or how long it's going to take to be paid. From the consumer standpoint, you're more apt to ask about the cost to figure out how much things are going to run you. And therefore, as a more informed consumer, you're more likely to say no to services that you don't deem necessary relative to the cost. And that, in effect, controls costs as well. So it's really painting two extreme pictures where we go 100% all in with the insurance versus 100% all in with the cash system. Now, the obvious, the other obvious difference is in the universal plan. The idea is everyone has access to insurance, which is also contributing to that much higher costs, whereas a cash-based plan does not necessarily mean everyone has access to it. So really just painting those two extremes. And realistically, we may end up somewhere in between those. So our current system is really in between those two extremes and therefore would end up having cost somewhere in between them as well. And if, if someone is wanting to uh, sort of direct themselves, their, their path, their interest, their support when everybody's trying to make these decisions of, of which direction to go, what is the best way to go about doing that? If, if somebody says, I, I'm interested in, in going down, I, I want this extreme where it's a cash basis, what's the proper step to support that? What's the proper thing to consider on your own? What's the proper thing to, to do to try and get that moving? Is that, does that make sense? Yeah. So, I mean, from a broad standpoint, obviously your vote is kind of how you determine if you go one way or the other, who, which politicians you vote for, because they're ultimately deciding if the entire system is going to go one way or the other. From an individual perspective, though, you can absolutely choose to go one way or the other. You, you've already probably chosen that in your personal lives, whether you're accepting the insurance that your employer is providing, going out and purchasing insurance through the uh, marketplace, or if you've actually gone out and found a healthcare provider that is operating on an all-cash system or maybe even a prepaid plan. I know there are healthcare professionals, uh, clinics, 
that provide services on a prepaid plan. So you're bypassing insurance completely in those systems. And many healthcare providers will actually offer a discount if you are paying with cash instead of insurance. And so the ability to look at these different possibilities and be be informed in the different possibilities and and how you want to move forward will allow you to to build that foundation of of how you want to run your life and your your healthcare and your treatments and your payments unless there is a strong involvement of of required required healthcare is that what I'm trying to say yeah, yeah, know, basically. Health, required health insurance, not necessarily required health care. Um, and when you say be informed, I would add to that actually be informed. Do your own research. Look it up. Look up the differences in the healthcare and analyze the data that is being shown to you. There are often broad based claims that say, oh, well, this country is using universal health care and the fact is they're not or they have they tried it and realized that they wanted to add private health care back in because it didn't work the way they anticipated um and a lot of the statistics look i'm a, I'm a numbers guy i love data but statistics can be manipulated one glaring example of that would be the statistics around uh, mortality rates of infants. So, and I'm, we're getting off on a big tangent here, but people often point to the healthcare system and say, okay, well, we spend more than any other country on private healthcare and healthcare in general per, cap, general per capita, but our healthcare actually isn't better. And one of the things they point to is that our infant mortality rates are not as good as other countries that are utilizing a universal health care plan. The drawback to that particular statistic is that the way it's counted is not universal. And what I mean by that is as you go back, so the more premature a child is born, the more likely they are to pass away. And... Each country chooses how early a child can be born, and they still count it. Meaning that one country might say, okay, well, a child that's born three weeks premature, that will count. But anything more premature than that no longer gets counted in those statistics. Whereas another country might say two months premature will still count it. And that's where you end up with the skewed data because the United States actually counts farther back or more premature than just about any other country. So our data that's being fed into it is naturally going to look worse just because we're counting premature births that are more likely to pass away anyway. And that's the type of thing that I mean by doing your own research and actually analyzing the data that's being presented to you. Because the statistics can be great and if the data being fed into them is accurate and comparable. So you That's totally fair. You gotta dig deep 
And that that's the biggest drawback to this whole thing is you really have to dig deep to figure out what you're being presented. Absolutely. And uh, that's where I'm hoping we were able to help here a little bit where you're starting that path of, of taking the time to do your own research to, to better yourself, to better your knowledge into the realm of, of healthcare and health insurance and how to move forward. And ultimately, now that we've addressed this section, we're, we're going to be able to address a lot more interesting things to us where it's the actual process of the investing in itself Yes. And in, Stocks, in bonds, doing so funds. Right. Because you are you are now looking at the the long term of making sure that you are prepared to be in those circumstances when you do reach those older ages of, of past the fifty five year mark. And uh, that's where we're hoping to address that in a future season. So uh, I, I I appreciate being able to address this season. We'll we'll come back at another time where we're able to to look at all of this and uh and move forward on a lot more interesting stuff but i I was glad we were able to to build up to this thing stepping stones this is just the first step right so thank you again for taking time to better yourself and learn a lot more than you thought you would ever learn and i think this is this is where we we end the end of this uh this first season wouldn't you say yeah well thank you very much for joining us on the truth about investing back to basics i'm chris holling and i'm sean cooper and we will see you here you, mm-hmm. we'll talk to you talk we'll at you. Talk to you we'll we'll have a talking Podcast disclaimer, disclaimer. The disclaimer following this disclaimer is the disclaimer that is required for this podcast to be up and running and fully functioning and moving forward. This is going to be the same disclaimer that you will hear in each one of our episodes. We hope you enjoy it just as much as we enjoyed making it. All content on this podcast and accompanying transcript is for informational purposes only. Opinions expressed herein by Sean Cooper are solely those of Fit Financial Consulting, LLC, unless otherwise specifically cited. Chris Holling, that's me, is not affiliated with Financial Consulting, LLC, nor do the views expressed by Chris Holling, me again, represent the views of Fit Financial Consulting, LLC. This podcast is intended to be used in its entirety. Any other use beyond the author's intent, distribution, or copying of its contents of this podcast is strictly prohibited. Nothing in this podcast is intended as legal, accounting, or tax advice and is for informational purposes only. All information or ideas provided should be discussed in detail with an advisor, accountant, or legal counsel prior to implementation. This podcast may reference links to websites for the convenience of our users. Our firm has no control over the accuracy or content of these other websites. Advisory services are offered through Fit Financial Consulting, LLC, an investment advisor firm registered in the states of Washington and Colorado. 
the presence of this podcast on the internet shall not be directly or indirectly interpreted as a solicitation of investment advisory services to persons of another jurisdiction unless otherwise permitted by statute. Follow-up or individualized responses to consumers in a particular state by our firm in the rendering of personalized investment advice for compensation shall not be made without our first complying with jurisdiction requirements or pursuant an applicable state exemption. For information concerning the status or disciplinary history of a broker-dealer, investment advisor, or other representatives, a consumer should contact their state securities administrator. Amen. Oh, how do I how do I do stuff? Okay, 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 okay. Oh no, I I like I don't even know if I'm gonna use dad jokes, I, but I like having them in case I do. Uh, I'd never let my children watch an orchestra. There's too much sax and violins. No, <laughs> pass. No. No, um, you didn't like that one? No, I got to kick out of that one. <laughs> uh, why don't ants get sick? Because they have little antibodies. <laughs> <laughs> oh, absurd. <laughs> okay, this... All right. A storm blew away 25% of my roof last night. Oof. <laughs> uh, that one was dumb it was so dumb <laughs> oof 25% of my roof is gone oof shout out to the people wondering what the opposite of an what 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 oh okay shout out to the people wondering what the opposite of in is you're shouting out all right. Oh, <laughs> wow. Uh, I got fired. I still liked your uh, um, sax and violins. No, the uh, you, the one you told me a while ago, the one about uh, the dyslexic guy. <laughs> dyslexic guy walks into a bra. That's one of my favorites. <laughs> yep. Yep. I like that uh, because I was out kind of late last night and, and had some drinks that like I've got this this deep raspy voice that I can utilize nice. I like it what's I a like phrase it. that you would use for, for a deep raspy voice what um, I don't know of one um, <laughs> Arby's <laughs> we have the meats it's not. Uh, it makes me think of. So this is what I say to my brother-in-law all the time because, and it right. comes from Remember the Titans. Mm. But uh, I love you, sugar. <laughs> I love you, sugar. Yeah. Uh, yeah actually, you have you seen Remember the Titans? Yeah, it's been years though. It makes okay, me- yeah. So he's on the phone with his girlfriend, and all the guys are waiting to get use the phone for a little bit, and she's like, "I'm not hanging up this phone till you say it." And he's like, "I love you, sugar. <laughs> I love you, sugar." <laughs> and they all make fun of him course but anyway it makes me think of actually the uh green mile it's uh the uh i'm awful tired boss oh yeah 
That's a great movie. I can oh. only watch it every so often though because it's so sad. Yes. Seconded. Uh, I bet a butcher $20 that he couldn't reach the meat on the top shelf. He said, sorry, man. Stakes are too high. <laughs> <laughs>